Like John the Baptist, my late Uncle John did some time in prison. Uncle John was not in prison for preaching the gospel. He was in prison for armed robbery, among other things. And while he was in prison, he met Jesus and decided that he should change his life and clean up his act, and that is what he did. When he got out of prison, he moved out to West Texas and started painting for a living. He experienced lots of cool things as a painter and shared loads of interesting stories with us. I remember even into adulthood, from childhood on up to adulthood, I loved to hear him tell stories because he was such a great storyteller. For example, he told us a story about a time that he had won a bid to paint an old country church, and he decided that he needed to get to work on it right away. But as the day wore on, he realized that he was running low on paint, and he was running out of daylight. And not only that, he could see a thunderstorm brewing on the horizon. Since he didn't have time to go all the way back into town and then back out into the country to that church, especially before the sunset and the storm hit, He decided that he would add a little water to the paint and work faster to finish the job. As he was putting his finishing touches on the church, the sky ripped open and rain poured out and the last coats of paint that he had put on the church began to wash away. And as he watched the paint bleeding down to the ground, he heard a voice from heaven say, Big John, repaint and thin no more. It is my prayer that you will hear that same voice from heaven today. Over the past several weeks, we have watched the story of a different John unfold from the angel's message in the temple to his mother's womb to the prison cell. When we first met John, he was just a fetus still developing in his mother's womb. He leapt for joy at the sound of Mary's voice in the presence of Jesus, who was still just a zygote at the time. We saw John prepare himself, body and soul, for the ministry. His spiritual formation took place in the desert and spanned about 30 years. We saw John stand up to preach the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins at the Jordan River, because like ancient Israel, the Israel of his day needed to stop wandering around in the wilderness and start a new life in the promised land. We saw him baptizing penitent sinners with water from the Jordan, because like Naaman the leper, the people of his day were unclean and needed to be washed. John was sent on mission into the world to prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. John was the voice of the Lord that broke the long, dark silence after centuries of waiting and expecting God to act once again. John's message to one and all was simply this, change your life and clean up your act. And his message was no different than the message of the prophets of God who came before him. I'm going to give you two examples of this from the Old Testament. And as I turn your attention to the Old Testament, do not say to yourselves, well, that was for them, but not for me. 
No, this is the true and living word of God. It is for you. And so if you have ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel the prophet preached, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Why? Because he sees the truth and turns away from all the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. I will judge everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. So repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest crooked guilt be your ruin. In other words, change your life and clean up your act. Joel the prophet also preached repentance, first to the clergy, then to the laity. Thus says the Lord to the clergy, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. And thus says the Lord to the laity, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with lamenting. Rend your hearts, not your garments. So whether you are a priest or a pastor or a parishioner, the message of God through the prophets is the same. Change your life and clean up your act. That's what I mean when I say that John preached repentance and forgiveness just like all the prophets who came before him. John was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. He preached repentance with fire in his bones, tears in his eyes, and love in his heart. He preached the good news of salvation not like a wild, sweaty-toothed madman, but like a tough-skinned and tender-hearted prophet who was speaking the love of God in truth with the voice of God. Why? Because like God, John wanted his hearers to turn away from their sins and be saved. So what was the good news that John was preaching? He said, repent and be baptized. Change your ways and clean up your act. Why? Because Christ is almost here. The Lord is drawing near. The Savior is coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is coming your way. And so he called people to prepare the way for the Lord. He opened his mouth and he preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But take note... Not everyone who heard John preach responded to his preaching in the same way. This is the way it always is in preaching. There's a mixed response, a mixed bag of responses that come your way. Some obeyed, others disobeyed. Some repented, others resisted. Ordinary folks, tax collectors, soldiers, blue-collar workers, the lower income of society 
were moved by his preaching and they asked, what shall we do? What shall we do to change our life and clean up our act? Religious leaders were troubled by his preaching and asked, who in the world do you think you are? And politicians were offended by his preaching and asked, what can I do to silence him and shut down his ministry? If nothing else, we can see that no one ignored John, that everyone took his preaching seriously, even if some of them set it aside or did not put it into practice. No one disregarded the message of repentance. And so it was that with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people, low and high, even to rulers on their thrones. But all of this begs the question, doesn't it? If all John was doing was preaching the good news of salvation, how did John end up in prison? Was the gospel that offensive? Was it that dangerous and threatening? And how in the world did John end up on the chopping block? And this brings us to the heart of our sermon passage today. In this story, we meet Herod the Tetrarch, who was the son of Herod the Great, the king that ordered the slaughter of the infants when Jesus Christ was born. This Herod, Herod Jr., was not so great. He was a ruler over one-fourth of the land of Judah, but he was never given the title of a king. But he definitely wanted to make Herod great again. This wannabe king had a reputation for being wicked and godless in the eyes of his community and certainly in the eyes of God. And so John, as a prophet, draws near and confronts Herod the way Elijah the prophet had confronted Ahab, boldly and openly, not in private, but in public. Why? Because public sin requires public rebuke. Everyone knew that Herod had married the daughter of a nearby foreign king, but they also knew that he had had an affair with his stepbrother's wife. They also knew that he ended up divorcing the king's daughter and marrying his stepbrother's wife, and he even fantasized over her daughter, who was his niece. In this chain of events, we see Herod breaking God's law in a variety of ways. So like a true prophet of God, John is there as a covenant prosecutor to point it all out. Now you might be asking, what were Herod's sins? Was he really all that bad? Did he really do a lot of evil? Is he the kind of candidate I could still vote for? He coveted his brother's wife. He committed adultery. He bore false witness. He rejected God's word. He imprisoned God's prophet. He resisted God's spirit. He feared man, not God. He lusted after his niece. He swore oaths in haste. He hardened his heart in pride. He lived with worldly regret. He refused to repent. Herod reminds me of some presidents that I've seen in my lifetime. 
but I don't have time to talk about Clinton or Trump. Not today, anyway. The point is that John went where no priest or prophet had ever gone before. He delved into Herod's private life. He meddled in his personal affairs. He looked into his heart and reached into his soul. And he preached the truth to power and called that wannabe king to change his life and to clean up his act. So John did far more than just step on Herod's pinky toes. He shone light on his sins and thrust the sword of the Spirit into Herod's conscience. And yes, he condemned Herod's sins and he called him to repentance. He wanted him to change. And Herod took all of that personally. Not like the crowds who asked, what shall we do? He took offense and was defensive. And so he added this to all the other evil that he had committed, that he locked up John in prison. Why? Because as it turns out, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. But John's goal was not to hurt this ruler. It was to help him. Keep in mind that when John came preaching repentance, he did not come preaching hellfire and brimstone. He came preaching the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He came revealing God's salvation to the people. And this included Herod. He called Herod and his family to turn away from the unholy trinity of money, sex, and power. He called them to receive the forgiveness of sins. He called them to prepare the way for the Lord. John did not preach to condemn Herod, but to deliver him. He went there, and he lost his head for it. Why? Because Herod and his family refused to change their life and clean up their act. The prophets say those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I don't know how long each and every one of you has been involved with the Christian church. I can tell you that I've been involved in the church long enough to notice quite a few changes. I notice, for example, that we don't hear about repentance or the need to repent our sins or the need to change our ways as much as previous generations did or as much as we used to. We hear lots and lots about acceptance and tolerance, not repentance and obedience. We hear lots about affirmation and confirmation but not about reformation. We hear lots about transitioning, not about transforming. But things were not always like this in the Christian church. At the start of the Reformation in the 16th century, Martin Luther insisted that all of life is repentance. 
that all of life is an ongoing, continuous struggle to change your life and clean up your act. And if that's true, and we certainly believe it is, then I must ask you, what are you doing to repent these days? What are you giving up or taking on to prepare the way of the Lord in your life? What are you putting to death or bringing to life in your heart and soul? What are you doing to change your life and clean up your act? Now, it helps to know what repentance is. You'll often hear people say repentance is a 180 turnaround. You're walking one direction, you turn around, go the other direction. That's part of it. You also hear people say it's a change of mind, and it is a change of mind. But it's all of this together. In the 17th century, the Westminster divines pulled it together and described repentance to us in the shorter catechism in this way. They say, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn away from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. In other words, repentance is not just about feeling bad about your sin. It's not just fearing that you might get in trouble. It's also about feeling good about God's mercy in your life. It's not just a matter of committing fewer sins over the course of your life. It is also a matter of becoming more and more like Jesus in your life. Yes, it's about changing your life and cleaning up your act as you conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might think that you don't really need to repent or that you've already repented in the past and you don't need to do it again or that you've repented enough to get by, to get the pastors out of your business, to get the Lord off your back, or maybe you've repented just enough to get into heaven and that's all you need. But let me impress upon you the truth of the gospel that whatever repenting you have done, whatever repenting you are doing, whatever repenting you are avoiding, you're barely scratching the surface of what needs to be dug out of your life. We all have room to grow and things to change. And so in order to help all of us change our life and clean up our act, in the daily grind of the real world, here are some things that I want you to consider in light of God's law. You know the commandments, don't you? But do you keep the commandments? Mothers and fathers, I urge you to turn your hearts to your children for the sake of Christ. Love them, spend time with them, play games, watch movies, 
throw balls, go fishing, bake cookies, play music. But don't forget to tell stories. Don't forget to listen. Don't forget to ask questions. Make time for praying and reading the scriptures. Don't abdicate your God-given responsibility to catechize your own children and to bring them up in the Lord. Take your kids to Jesus. Show them how to walk with him and how to worship him and how to work for him. Teach them to prepare themselves for the coming of Jesus Christ. And children, even you teenagers, especially you teenagers, turn your hearts to your parents. Love them. Don't roll your eyes at them. Don't sass them. Don't backtalk them. Don't shut them out of your life. Let them in. Share your dreams with them. Share your fears with them. Open your hearts to them. Tell them the truth. Honor them. Obey them. Say please and thank you. Do your homework. Help around the house. And whatever else they expect you to do without being reminded a dozen times. And by all means, follow your mommy and your daddy as they follow Jesus. And everyone, flee idolatry. Guard your hearts against the counterfeit trinity of money, sex, and power. Don't set your hopes on functional idols like America or a president or the military or the economy. Set your hopes on the Lord God alone. Use your money to do good. Use your power to help others. Use your influence to make the world better. And if you're a baptized Christian, don't take the Lord's name in vain, in thought, in word, or in deed. Remember, you are not representing yourselves, but God who put his name on you in baptism the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So don't forget, no matter where you are, who you're with, where you've gone, you are a baptized Christian. And everyone, stop treating the Lord's day like another ordinary day to do whatever you please. Start treating the Lord's day like a holy day, like the holy day that it is. A gift of grace to worship and rest. Grace to meet the Lord at his table. Grace to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and death. Treat the Lord's day as your top priority, not as a soft option. Treat it as your bounden duty, a holy obligation, a sacred right and responsibility. And remember that the worship of God is life and everything else is just details. Don't tell lies. 
Don't tell little lies. Don't tell big lies. Always tell the truth, even if your voice shakes, even if it costs you your pride and your reputation. Do whatever you can to preserve life and the reputation of other people. Don't take life. Don't destroy life. Don't bring others down. Don't do it with angry curses or hateful words or ugly looks. Do not murder other people in your heart. Honor true marriage between one man and one woman. Don't be fooled by counterfeits or by same-sex mirage. Keep your marriage bed holy and remember that it is the most holy and sacred place in your home. Strive for fidelity in your marriage and support it in the marriages of others. Stay away from porn and anything that looks like porn. Strive for purity of heart in all your relationships. Stay away from people and places that would tear apart what God has joined together. And everyone, don't rob God, but bring your tithes and offerings to the Lord. Give your first fruits to the Lord and not your leftovers. Practice generosity with the best you have, not with the worst. Give your most, not your least. And remember, it is more blessed to give than receive. God loves a cheerful giver. So give cheerfully, joyfully, generously, with grace in your hearts, not with grudges. And pursue contentment in all things. Do not be covetous. Cultivate a heart of gratitude for whatever the Lord has entrusted to your care. Don't let any bitter root of ingratitude take hold in your life. Thank God daily for your spouse, for your house, your children, for your work, your income, your health, your car, your things. Guard your spirit against envy, discontentment, and greed. If you had any doubts before this walk through the Ten Commandments, about whether you need to repent or not, perhaps now you see why we are all called to change our lives and clean up our act. We are all called to repent because none of us have it all together. And now we can see and feel that all of life is repentance. Now, I didn't say any of this because I'm trying to harm you. I'm trying to help you. These are not gotcha statements. These are gracious reminders that we all have room to change for the better in our love for God and in our love for our neighbor. And I didn't say any of this assuming that I have it all together. You know me better than that. Like you, I struggle with these things. Repentance will be a lifelong endeavor for me and for you. But I imagine that many of you heard these things and you felt overwhelmed with a bit of guilt sorrow, or even despair. You might hear the law of God come upon your life and realize that you have totally messed up. And then you might imagine that since you've totally messed up, God must be utterly disgusted with you. And despite your best efforts, you might feel that you can never change your life or clean up your act because you keep failing again and again. 
But let me suggest to you that true repentance is found in the struggle and the desire to change. God's kindness is what has brought you to this point. God's kindness is what has brought us to the point of repentance. Because God does not want any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance and be saved. He even rejoices in the presence of angels in heaven whenever a sinner repents and returns to him. He is delighted to receive sinners in his arms. Now, I know that change is hard and it can even seem impossible. But nothing is impossible for the Lord, for nothing is too hard with him. So I don't want you to be afraid of repenting and returning to the Lord. To the contrary, I want you to be afraid of not repenting and returning to the Lord. I want you to be afraid of not changing your life or cleaning up your act. And here's why. Because repentance is so good for your soul. Not only does it lead to your sins getting blotted out and erased and forgiven for all time, it also leads to times of spiritual refreshment for you from the presence of the Lord. In other words, on the other side of repentance is the gift of grace, and that grace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. I can assure you that you will never, ever regret repenting your sins. But if you do not practice repentance, you will always and ever regret resisting the Spirit, and even worse, you will suffer the grief of that regret and that remorse for all the days of your life and for the life to come. I want to end this sermon by echoing a sermon by St. Gregory Palamas, an archbishop of the church in the 14th century. This is what he preached. Repentance, which is true and truly from the heart, persuades the penitent not to sin anymore, not to mix with corrupt people, and not to gaze in curiosity at evil pleasures, but to despise things present, cling to things to come, struggle against passions, seek after virtues, be self-controlled in every respect, keep vigil with prayers to God, and shun dishonest gain. Repentance, which is true and truly from the heart, convinces the penitent to be merciful to those who wrong him, gracious to those who ask something of him, ready with all his heart to bend down and help in any way he can, all who seek his assistance whether by words, actions, or money. That through kindness to his fellow man, he might gain God's love in return for loving his neighbor. That he might draw the divine favor to himself and attain to eternal mercy and God's everlasting blessing and grace. That he might attain to eternal mercy and God's everlasting blessing and grace. And ultimately, that is why you should change your life and clean up your act. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, 
and relents over disaster. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious Father, in your mercy another day has been added to our lives. Grant us the grace to dedicate both our souls and our bodies to you and to your service. And we ask you, O merciful God, to confirm and strengthen us that as we grow in age, we may also grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And since your Son, our Savior, Jesus, knows the weakness of our nature and the many temptations that we daily meet with, we humbly ask you to have compassion on us and our weaknesses, to give us the constant assistance and help of your Holy Spirit, that we may be effectually restrained from sin, encouraged to do our due diligence, and that you will imprint upon our hearts such a dread of your judgments and such a grateful sense of your goodness to us that we will be moved both to trust and obey you, that we will be both afraid and ashamed to offend you, and above all, that you would keep in our minds an active and lively remembrance of that coming day of judgment, the great day in which we must all give a strict account of our thoughts, words, and deeds. To the Lord Jesus Christ, when we appear at his judgment seat, for you have appointed him to judge the quick and the dead. All this we ask and pray with the hope of repentance in our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.